Hi, everybody. Um, my name is Liam McCoy. I'm a second year medical student at the University of Toronto, co enrolled in the master's with uh, the Institute of Health Policy Management Evaluation. And um, alongside my colleagues, Vinyas and Ashilin, who I'll get to introduce themselves in a second, we'll be giving a talk on medical student perspectives on COVID 19 and education during the, this period. Oh, I was going to let you guys introduce yourselves now. Oh, okay. <laughs> Um, hi everyone, my name is Ms. Sheila. I'm also a second year med student at U of T and uh, like Liam also pursuing a concurrent MSc at uh, the Institute for Health Policy and Management. Um, and very excited to be uh, sharing our perspectives with you today. And my name is Vinyas. I'm in the third year of the joint MD-PhD program here at U of T. So I've done two years of medical school and now I've just started my PhD at the also Institute of Health Policy Management Evaluation. And so I'll direct everybody to slides that are in the uh, description of the YouTube stream if you want to follow along with our slides, otherwise you can just listen to our voices. So we won't be discussing a traditional ethics talk here, um, but rather sort of offering our perspectives as the students who are adjacent to this pandemic. We're going to be discussing it in three broad areas. The first is learning medicine during COVID-19. So what are the unique challenges and considerations with being learners in this crisis time? The second is pandemic productivity pressures. So what are the good and the bad sides of all the work being done by students right now. And the third is the future of medical education. What does COVID-19 reveal to us about the nature of med ed and you know what can go and what should stay the same? So starting off with med learning during medicine during the pandemic, um, I'll note that there's two stages to medical training. The first is the pre-clerkship years where you spend two years learning the basic science and the basic clinical knowledge and the basic vocabulary. And the last two years are clerkship where you're in the hospital functionally as an apprentice working alongside the physicians who are carrying out everyday care. And with the surge in COVID-19, medical students were rapidly pulled away from the hospitals in Canada and away from the clinical learning environment. But at the same time, massive human resource pressures in Italy and places like Italy and New York led to the early graduation of medical students who were immediately sent off to the front lines. Um, learning medicine during COVID-19 has raised a large number of, uh, number of novel challenges and questions, including the first topic I'll discuss, which is sort of the sense of weight and medicine as a calling. This sense of substantial personal risk on providers and potentially transmission to their families has very much pierced the veil between medical students and patients and medical learners in general. I think that a lot of people are, are you know, really feeling the seriousness of what it means to have the privilege to train to be a physician and to fill this role. And I think seeing the massive impact COVID-19 has had on the world really shows you how essential health is to underlie and medicine health to underlie everything we do. Uh, do you have additional thoughts on this, Vinyas and Nishila? <laughs> Nishila, do you want to go first? Sure. Um, yeah, I absolutely agree that um, I don't think that when many of us were making the decision to become uh, doctors, we really thought about uh, practicing during a pandemic and what that would look like. I think for sure there was an understanding that there was a, a degree of risk in, in being a medical professional that is probably greater than some other professions. But um, I think for sure it's it's been almost a renewed sense of understanding of what the field means and what it actually means to be a, a physician. Um, and I think our uh, faculty have been trying to um, show us a little bit of this as well. For example, our uh, Dean of the MD program, Dr. Houston, has been um, taking videos of herself while she's um, on call as an anesthesiologist at St. Mike's, showing us sort of the behind the scenes of um, what it's like to be a doctor during this pandemic, which is a perspective that many of us would not really get otherwise. So I think um, definitely it's been an awakening in that sense. I definitely agree. I think we learn a lot, so much from our supervisors and our preceptors in the clinical environment. And it's 
been just so incredible to see the extent of the sacrifices that they're making, especially when they're working in the hospitals, for example, um, to avoid potentially exposing their family members. They might sleep in the garage. And uh, there's one doctor who tweeted out that he hadn't given his kids a hug in weeks. And that was something that really stood out to me as, you know, the gravity of the sacrifices that are um, teachers are making in these times. And definitely with the echoes of the experience of SARS 17 years ago in Toronto, throughout first year and the first half second year, you'd hear little bits and pieces of it. Now we're certainly living through something very similar to that. Um, and that brings me to topic two, which is the ethics of trainees at risk. Um, you know, the ethics of pulling medical students out or having medical students present um, all the way up the ladder to residents, to fellows, and so on. And in some ways, this is connected to that classical dilemma of medical education. The presence or activities of learners may actually be worse for a given patient, but they are substantially better for patients overall by allowing for the training and the generation of academic uh, medical knowledge and the addition of new practitioners. The questions that arise and that are on all our minds is, you know, if this pandemic is long-term enough to tangibly impact the training cycle, what does the admirable impulse to keep medical students safe and away from management of COVID-19 patients mean? Does this make sense in this context? What are the drivers of this? And in general, how can we interrogate the role of medical students as, you know, part of the team and as potentially assuming risk because of that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think um, like on one hand, we, we do need to learn how to uh, practice in a pandemic because the reality is, for example, our third years, even when they are pushed out into the workforce as residents, when they graduate in a year, um, if we sort of shelter them right now, are we giving them the tools they need to actually do their job once they are residents? Um, but at the same time, I think putting students back into the clinical environment right now raises a lot of concerns. Um, for example, is there enough personal protective equipment to go around for everyone right now? And is adding a student into the environment um, in the sense that students don't really, are not as essential to the patient care, um, just contributing to a shortage of PPE. Um, and also we were discussing earlier from a patient's perspective, when um, patients nowadays are not allowed to have family members um, in the hospital with them. And it doesn't matter if you're giving birth or if you have cancer, um, you are just having to go through it alone right now. Um, why are we allowing med students who again, don't necessarily contribute as much to care to be another person in the room when patients, for example, may, may prefer for that person, that body to be someone else. So those are just some of the thoughts going through my head. Something that I thought of on a very similar note was, what are the roles medical students actually play in a clinical environment? I think for one, they're very important information gatherers because it is um, fairly common for medical students to spend towards an hour, especially on certain internal medicine rotations, interviewing patients, taking a very thorough medical history, um, as well as a social history and really diving deep into how patients are really feeling at a given time and advocating for them as part of the team. Medical residents and staff physicians just do not have the same amount of time to dedicate to seeing each individual patient. But when, especially on internal medicine, you have about six patients that you are taking care of, you see these patients multiple times a day for up to an hour at a time. And you have to wonder if now that there are so many competing issues for these residents and these staff um, doctors' time. 
is care less empathetic or less compassionate because medical students actually play a very important role in delivering empathetic and compassionate care. And that's needed more in these emergency situations, not less. That's a really excellent point, Vinyas. Um, and then segueing to the third subtopic here is the question of, you know, the ethical issues intrinsic to COVID-19. COVID-19 is raising important ethical issues at the health systems and clinical levels. Questions of, you know, what communities are being most affected on the public health level? How should we be guiding our response? Um, students were not prepared for the possibility of having to potentially engage in wartime style ventilator triage like was seen in Northern Italy. And, you know, faculties across the country are scrambling to ensure this information is sort of being delivered back to students. And I know there's also been some great work done by students themselves to um, accumulate resources like the COVID-19 ethics resource that was done by some U of T students to sort of figure out how we get that piece of education in this pandemic time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I think it's, it's challenging because there it's difficult for medical educators to ever predict that we would need this level of ethical training. Um, I think, you know, people have always argued that med students need to be taught more ethics in our curriculum, but I think now it's almost like we need to add um, content that was just not planned to be integrated ever. Um, I know to an extent, um, we have our third years re-entering um, clinical clerkship starting July 6th, so they will actually be receiving some amount of ethics training. There's like a workshop and small group discussions um, happening, so I think um, it's sort of there's a scramble going on to, to see if you know if we can adequately equip med students but at the same time I'm not too concerned because med students are not like decision makers um, in this context and I think we just have a lot we will probably learn a lot more um, right now than than you know we're responsible for. Similarly when I think back to the role of staff physicians I think when students are really in a clinical environment and we have excellent physicians who are willing to admit that certain times they, they don't know the right answer. The art of medicine is actually knowing what to do in spite of imperfect information and imperfect evidence and still working with patients to try and make the right decisions for them at a given time. I think it's very apparent now that our staff physicians who we often look to as the source of the answer also don't know because there is a lot of evidence that's coming out every day with COVID-19 and we try to learn more every day but they still have to make decisions that is extremely difficult so I think about the uncertainties that we're facing but I think as medical students we're fortunate in that sense compared to residents and staff physicians where we can be excused from making the difficult decisions, but they are not. And I can imagine that weighs very heavily on them. And with that, we'll segue into section two, pandemic productivity, and I'll hand over to Nishila. Great, thanks, Liam. Um, so yeah, as we mentioned in our overview, the next topic we felt it was important to touch on was the pressures around productivity that medical students have been facing um, during this time. Um, and so I guess just to provide some context. So as Liam mentioned, around um, early, the first week of March, um, pre-clerkship students as well as clerkship students, so all years were pulled out of the clinical environment um, and uh, all classes were shifted to online, which meant that um, a lot of us um, felt we were sort of quote unquote benched at the time in that 
um, we were told to sort of stay out of the way so that uh, the frontline healthcare workers could manage the pandemic, which is absolutely fair. Um, at the same time, however, a lot of um, a lot of us started to realize there were a lot of critical gaps in the COVID response, whether it be um, not having enough personal protective equipment or um, there being issues with frontline um, help frontline healthcare workers needing more support during this time and um, felt that there was still an opportunity um, despite being quote unquote benched for med students to um, contribute and help in some way. Um, so during, uh, right after we were pulled out, um, we, we started to see um, a lot of different student-led initiatives starting to, um, starting to um, become organized. And these, things, these were everything from people hand sewing masks to um, going out into the community and fundraising and collecting personal protective equipment. We have a group which some of you may have, have seen in the, in the papers, which has gotten lots of media coverage, um, who has been um, uh, providing childcare for physicians um, because a lot of childcare services have been shut down and frontline physicians really needed it um, at this time. Um, and so overall, even just at U of T Med alone, there's about 15 to 20 student-led initiatives um, within our medical class. So while, while I think a lot of this started off with genuine desires to help out, um, a lot of students have been feeling um, a pressure to participate or to, to help out in some way. And that if they don't, they're actually not being an ideal medical student, that they'll be looked down on by um, other members of the medical community. So what initially started off um, in a very positive way is now being seen um, with a more critical lens. Um, there's a lot of students obviously who are doing work that is important. And um, for example, um, helping out neighbors and helping out with their family that is not as visible. Um, and it, there's been criticism that students who are doing this kind of work are not um, going to be seen in the same light by um, senior members of medical training who evaluate us and who give markers for residency applications um, in the same way that someone who is on the front page of the Toronto Star might be looked at. So um, yeah, I'm really interested to hear from Liam and Vin about what your thoughts have been. Have you felt this pressure um, and what, like, what do you think the origins of this pressure are, and is it unique to medical students? You know, I think, um, like, I've been fortunate to be involved in a few initiatives, most directly through the How's My Flattening um, data analysis group, and for me, it felt really good to be able to be involved, despite, you know, being all the way back home in Alberta, being able to help with something. I think, you know, as you identified, a lot of medical students have that exact impulse, but I think that this really shows the the difficulty and toxicity that comes from the zero sum game of residency matching in the sense that for every student who matches given a set number of seats and you know x seats and x plus 20 medical students there always feels as though there's this very intense competition um, where it's not only what a student does but it's what they do in relation to their peers which has brought out i think a lot of this conflict and you know, it's been unfair to those students who are in difficult or unsafe home situations or have been doing unpaid labor in the home, people who are parents or people who are caregivers for the elderly. Um, and, you know, there's definitely been concern. I think there's been some tangible response to recognize that, you know, your measure of worth as a future physician is not necessarily what you do during a pandemic. Um, but at the same time, there's also been a bit of a pendulum swing where I think there's been some unfair criticism arising towards students who have done initiatives completely um, out of the goodness of their own heart, putting in tremendous amounts of work with people who do happen to end up on the front page of the newspaper or what have you being criticized or being, you know, seen as potentially disingenuous. Um, and I, I think that the last thing that I'll bring up here is that, 
you know, it's interesting to see us now shifting from an acute phase response to a longer term phase. So in the short term, it was amazing to see all these volunteer resources all over be mobilized. But I think that, you know, we need to move because this pandemic is not going away anytime soon. We need to move to sustainable structural responses rather than just relying on the ad hoc volunteerism of individual students. And I think that um, keeping that in mind, realizing that as this initial burst of energy falls away as other life burdens pick up on people, we need to up our structural responses to, to fill that emerging gap. And I think in my perspective as an MD-PhD student, so I completed my second year of medical school last year before everyone had COVID-19 as part of their vocabulary. And over last year, I've been working on my PhD. And I've actually switched the topic of my PhD to be doing uh, epidemiology all around COVID-19. And as strange as it might sound, it feels like the pandemic has been the best thing that could have happened to my career thus far. Um, and it's strange to think that somebody might perceive that as work done for the sake of matching into a residency program, because that is not why I'm doing it. I'm doing it because I'm interested in the area as one of scientific inquiry. And I, I think it's something that I'm just really passionate about. Um, at the same time, there is a lot of pressure to just keep executing and have tangible output though. And all the other work doesn't stop. Speaking and reflecting on the scientific field as a whole right now it has been extremely problematic because there's a huge amount of literature coming every day or every hour on COVID-19. It's impossible to keep track of it all. And perhaps more problematically is that a lot of the science is deeply flawed because researchers and doctors are similarly feeling this pressure to not just take care of patients on the front lines, but contribute towards generating better evidence or finding the answers to the tough problems. The thing is, if you don't take the necessary time and care into the scientific process, you could have sloppy research and that can do a lot of harm. At the same time, I recognize I'm very fortunate to be able to focus on my work right now. A 20 something year old male without much else going on, I'm very fortunate. Um, but as shown on the fifth slide of our slideshow, these pressures around productivity isn't unique to medicine and academic medicine, but it shows across society as a whole. In fact, uh, some informal analysis by a group, I think at Nature, the major scientific journal, kept track of the amount of preprints that have been coming out. And they noticed that female academics are on fewer preprints at this time. And, and that echoes to what Liam was talking about, about the likelihood that they're actually doing unpaid work at home. The truth is that this has always been the case, but it's exacerbated now because they don't have childcare support and the other supports that they so heavily rely on to balance their identities. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I because we, of that, Sorry, uh, Sorry there have been arguments yeah. um, to pause the tenure clock or promotional clocks. You know, typically academics may have a period of five years to demonstrate enough output to move up the ladder, but I think everyone might need more time now. And that's, mm -hmm. it gets to that sort of structural solution Liam was referring to. I'm actually done now. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> um, absolutely. I think I think the message that needs to be sent out is if you want to learn a whole new language and um, pick up 10 hobbies, it's good for you um, or want to volunteer. But for those who, who choose not to because they either don't want to your mental health or, um, you know, you have other priorities at this time, like all responses to a pandemic are valid and especially the med student community, um, I hope uh, embraces that. So with that, I'll, I'll turn it over to Vin. The last section that we wanted to talk about is what the future of medical education might look like. So now we're on slide number six. And I think the types of images that you see here capture the, the two types of feeling or thinking that medical students are in the middle of right now. On, on the left of this slide, I took two screenshots of articles in prestigious medical journals by medical educators. What does medical student education look like in the time of COVID-19? How do we move content rapidly online? What content is better suited for online learning than other types of content? And at U of T, we're very fortunate that students have a lot of say into shaping this discussion. But at the same time, I think in society as a whole, there's a lot of anxiety and a lot of frustration at these overall circumstances. And so beside that, uh, there's this great meme or image from this Facebook group, Zoom memes from self-quarantines. And what this Facebook group is, is hundreds of thousands of 20-somethings, 30-somethings across the world, whether they're in undergrad or grad school or professional school. And they use posting memes as a sort of outlook for their frustrations and their feelings at this time. And so we've included one of what virtual med school kind of looks like in, in reference to a game for children where you click through and, and you gather these details about your virtual patient. And the thing is though, medical education has this opportunity right now to maybe change for the better. And one serious way of doing so is that maybe not all content actually needs to be done in person. There are certain things that is just better to deliver online. And I'm curious to uh, hear from Liam and Nishila on this because they're actually going through the pre-clerkship curriculum right now. Yeah, I'm, I'm happy to take this first. Um, I think that U of T Medicine has already done a great job of having a lot of their content online, a lot of their content being accessible. And I, I'm personally the sort of student who prefers to watch lectures later at home, prefers to watch the small self-learning videos we have at home. Um, you know, you're realizing the, that what COVID-19 is doing by pushing even more medical education online is potentially acting as a democratizing force. It's acting to show, you know, how a lot of this education really can be delivered at a massive scale um, to a lot of different people. You know, perhaps these medical education collaborations, not just from individual schools, individual faculties, but between faculties, between faculties all around the world, you know, can really potentially emerge out of this to really produce the best content in a, a more consistent fashion rather than every single school and every single professor trying to make their own version of it. Similarly, for some people, um, they've been able to save money by moving out of expensive downtown Toronto and being able to be at home with their families, which wasn't necessarily an option in the past. Um, but of course, at the same time, you know, there's the obvious losses. There's the losses of being able to physically touch patients and perform physical exam maneuvers. There's the loss of 
um, you know, the ability to spend time in the hospital and get a sense of how that environment works. But I also highlight something that's a little more, I think, intangible that's lost and something I'm concerned about for the class incoming in the fall is that one of the best things about medical school is this sense of shared community, the sense of becoming a physician together with people, the sense of going through very difficult tasks like anatomy dissection and working with human cadaveric tissue together with other people who are experiencing the same thing at the same time. There's both a sense of solidarity and a sense of personal development into that physician role that I think is accompanied by this. And I think that, you know, it's going to be very difficult to maintain that to the same degree with the shift online. Not impossible. And I'm certainly excited to see what innovations come out in response to this. That's perfect. I think Liam covered everything I'd want to say. So I'll save my comments for the next section. Yes, the, the next question is, is really tailored towards you, Nishila. So for those following along at home, we're on slide number seven. And in addition to the activities that Liam mentioned, learning how to interview patients in the hospital or doing dissections in the anatomy lab, there are a couple big keystone moments throughout medical education. Oftentimes, they're big exams. One exam is written by students at the end of their fourth year. It's called the medical, oh, I can't remember what the acronym stands for, but the MCCQE, which is basically our final licensing exam at the end of fourth year. People have to travel often to write these exams, and if they're not done on time, they can cause huge problems, uh, especially for the analog to this exam that is written at the end of residency training. If you don't get that exam done on time, it can impact when you're starting a job or starting a family. What does it really mean to finish these exams and be certified? What is the nature of calling yourself a fully licensed practicing doctor? Yeah, absolutely. And I think what started a lot of the discussions around this is the fact that um, the body which administers this licensing exam had initially said that we cannot do this exam online. You'll probably take it in the fall. Um, and a lot of students said, wait, does that mean we won't be able to start residency? Do we have to take time um, out of our residencies to do it? Um, and then they, they said they would administer it online, um, causing a whole host of other technical issues. Um, and out of this movement, um, there was a, sorry, out of this issue, a movement was born to try to eliminate the idea of a licensing exam completely. Um, so that may sound um, not wise to some people as, as you know, the licensing exam historically has served to um, what they say protect the public against um, potentially, um, basically against harm by ensuring that all physicians are meeting a certain standard. That being said, what that fails to account for is how medical education has changed over time. And we are, we've moved towards what we call a competency-based model where for example, during your third and fourth years, you cannot proceed to the next rotation without demonstrating that you know how to take a, for example, psychiatric history and perform certain physical exams and prescribe and use an electronic medical record and, and uh, these competencies that are deemed to be essential activities. So if you go through all of these and meet all of these, uh, go over all these hurdles and, and successfully make it to the end of your fourth year, what is the purpose of that additional licensing exam other than to potentially take a thousand dollars out of your pocket? So I think there's some really interesting considerations and I hope these conversations continue. And you know, I agree broadly with you, Nishila, and I think that um, it, we potentially have failed if there's only 
you know, two points, one at the end of medical school and one at the end of residency, whereby you assess a physician's competency in either direction, either positively or negatively. Um, if people are, if, you know, physicians are not competent to carry out the tasks that are expected of them, hopefully this is identified and remediated in some way before they get to this big exam at the end of the residency. And in the opposite direction, you know, we'd hope that a single day's performance is not enough to certify a person as a competent physician, regardless of what their conduct is in the clinic for the rest of their career. And I think that assessment and certification are definitely complex and they're definitely absolutely essential. Um, it's very central to the role of physicians that we are well assessed and that we are well certified. There's massive public safety on the line, but at the same time, novel methods should be explored to figure out you know, how we can move potentially from that more 20th century idea of a single examination into the 21st century with more ongoing monitoring or more ongoing assessment and more creative assessment of, uh, of physician skills. And I know we're coming right up to the time that we have today, but the, the final thought that I want to put out there is what about the, the processes of medical school admissions? There's a recent um, news article that came out about McMaster deciding to use a lottery to pick their entering class. And I was wondering to get your thoughts on changes to the application processes, whether it's for people entering medical school or for um, medical students who are applying toward their residency programs. Yeah, so for just some context on that McMaster piece, um, it took a lot of people by surprise. Um, essentially when COVID hit, um, a lot of medical schools were either halfway through the process of interviewing potential med student candidates or had not started. Um, University of Toronto, uh, what they did is for those who still had interviews pending, they um, transitioned their questions to an online format and basically marked students against those who had also done it in an online format and tried to keep it very equitable. Uh, McMaster, on the other hand, had not started any of its interviews. They do 600 interviews every year and they have a very unique interview style called multiple mini interview requiring 12 stations with different interviewers and thus conducting it virtually was just, they deemed to be not a technologically feasible possibility. So what they decided to do and a decision that um, garnered a lot of controversy was to use um, the, like the top students' um, undergrad marks, their MCAT marks and their um, marks from another online ethics written test um, to rank the top 100 candidates who had those scores, give them offers, and for the remaining 500, they randomized you to either accept, waitlist, or reject. And it's a lot of students felt that it was one, not great for our future patients to be selecting um, future doctors randomly, but also unfair to candidates themselves. Um, that being said, a lot of people came out, um, and especially people who are interested in equity in medicine, and said that the, the people who make it to that stage, like the final 600, are likely all qualified in terms of ability to become a successful physician and um, interviews themselves have so much luck involved also they have bias involved um, and you getting to that stage itself is luck in terms of the life circumstances into which you were born so you know they, they contested this idea of a lottery system is unfair because they felt um, there's a much larger lottery system at play here which we're all part of and you know, I think to add to that um, this provides us with, you know, somewhat of a natural experiment to really question the nature of the interview and, you know, what it teaches us meaningfully about applicants. So from, 
my experiences speaking with people both within medical school and in really incredible accomplished people I know who have not been successful in the past in their admissions. Um, we, we are certainly gifted with an excess of qualified incredible people in this country and we're very lucky for that. Um, the question of the interview, you know, really comes down to whether or not it teaches you meaningful things about the applicant or whether it simply gives you the illusion of having learned meaningful things about the applicant. Can somebody with unethical views or poor skills simply conceal them for a few hours and sort of move onward? Um, you know, how should the ongoing assessment of medical student communication skills and ethics be performed again, similar to the difference with the exam, rather than a single point of time as the interview as sort of the gate of who's on what side or the other. Uh, I think as well, you know, it causes us to interrogate what the relative contributions of different sort of metrics of achievement are in medical school admissions. I think that's, you know, a massive question that we certainly can't solve here, but questions of what role grades play, what role exams like the MCAT play, what role life experiences play, what role more traditional versus non-traditional experiences play. And I think certainly moving forward from COVID, we may have an opportunity to reform some aspects of the system. I think we should make sure that we do it deliberately. And even if that means challenging our traditional assumptions about you know, what the contribution of the interview might actually be. I think that's a really good place to, to leave things here. Nishila, do you want to wrap up? Yeah, well, I mean, I think there's so much more that we could sit here and discuss. I think for all of us, this this pandemic has been eye-opening. We have more questions than we have answers at this point, and it's something we're discussing with our friends every day. Um, and thank you all for tuning in to, to just hear our perspectives, and we hope you learned something. Um, if, you, if you can leave comments on YouTube, I'm not sure you can, um, go for it. We'll try our best to answer your questions, and you're always welcome to contact us, too. Um, so that's all. Thank you. Thanks so much. Thanks, everyone.